0: We need to build societies that are not founded on the violent presuppositions of liberalism, but on the peace of Christ. To do this, we need to acquire a fresh, spiritual way of thinking beyond the boring categories that modernity has to offer. The Catholic social teaching is this fresh way of thinking. I'm Jacob fareed malm from Post-Liberal Thought, this is The Catholic Social Difference with Andrew Willard Jones. Andrew, we're starting off this podcast. you um, are sitting down in my uh, library with a cup of coffee, and you started to say too many interesting things, so I'm starting us off a little bit <laughs> faster than, than we usually do. You begin talking about Pope Leo XIII's Rerum Novarum. People often assume that this is a place where the church begins its discussion on social doctrine. Yeah, 1891,
1: right, and people will say... The birth of catholic social doctrine the beginning of catholic social thought as if something radically new had happened like the church had finally realized that there was this thing called society and we had something to say about it which it's is given everything we've everything talked we've about, talked about and, and the very content of christianity is a bizarre thought right like <laughs> it
0: doesn't <laughs> It's weird it is strange but <laughs> no it would seem to me that the reason why people make this assumption is because the church Finally, had an alternative system to fight against. Right. I think ideologies is a really important place to start because it was something new to the modern world um, that you don't see in the ancient world. I I think that there are some real, true, categorical differences between what you find in, say, socialism compared to what the god kings of of the ancient world believed and were doing. Right. And maybe we can discuss. Why that is? And that's sure, a good place. Sure, why sure. you think that is? Ideologies are systems of thought
1: that claim to exhaust the world. If we contrast them with, with what you we were talking about with ancient or medieval thought, mm-hmm. where there's always an, an understanding, or almost always an understanding, that the world that we encounter is not fully open to our control. Right, the world that we encounter always has layers of symbolism or layers of meaning that we're discovering, mm. that we're grasping after. Right. And we develop systems of thought that, of wisdom, really, that help us navigate that world
0: or try to make sense of it. Right. So to, to make this, a, or to concretize this in, in certain ways, you look at the Greeks in their tetralogy of plays that they would put on every, mm-hmm. every year, or at least Athenians in this this case, um, where it, you end up with these grand paradoxes and absolute mysteries right. and extreme barriers that human reason and human capability cannot surpass. Right. Um, when when faced with the gods, it's it's that sort of idea that the height of wisdom is is humility. Right. Which is also very quite strange because it, it wasn't really a virtue in the ancient right. world before Christ, and, right. and yet even still, they knew when it came to having a holistic, rational mindset, that that was a one place where humility was needed or something right. attuned something like that. to humility. Yeah, and in, in, in
1: Christianity, it becomes just outright humility. Right, exactly. Before the mystery mm-hmm. of the world. This idea that the things of the world are creations of God, thoughts of God, their, mm-hmm. their
0: essences are thoughts of God, not our thoughts. So, so the, turn back to your definition of ideology. Mm-hmm. Would you put it as... A rational a a closed rational system in which you could interpret and understand everything of the world. There's there's a way of interpreting everything that you experience in the world. Right. So what happens with ideology
1: is is that you've created a linguistic, rational, philosophical account Mm. of the world that is exhaustive. There's nothing in creation, in the world, in, in reality, that isn't capable of being categorized and placed in its place within the ideological system. And then you suppose the ideological system being prior to reality, All right? Mm. So, so mm-hmm. the, the the problem isn't then I'm engaging with reality and attempting to make sense of it. It's that I've made sense of reality. Now I need to fit the things I encounter into that sense, right? It's it's a it's a, a reversal of pre-modern thought. And the, and the thing that's going on, of course, I think is that ideology uh, assumes that we're God. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> it, it, it assumes that there's nothing that is above our reason, our linguistic and rational ability to make sense of things. So what that, in order for that to hold water, you have to basically deny the existence of things outside of the mind. The ideas are prior to
0: the things. It's, not, it's a form of nominalism. Heraclitus is considered to be a f- father of nominalism. He was a pre-Socratic philosopher who had said that, you know, if you stand in a river and you look at it, you watch it flow, does it, is it still the same river in every moment? Right. Its identity seems to be changing the whole time. And, and so the essence of that river seems to be something that's only in one's mind. It's just a name. It's just a name. Yeah. And of course, this, this was an idea that carried some weight and was popular for a while. Of course, Plato and Aristotle created systems that didn't allow for this. Mm-hmm. The essence of, of a thing for Plato corresponded to its form. Aristotle, the essence somehow resided in the thing itself. But the first time that you have nominalism as, as a full-blown system is actually in the Muslim world. Where, sure, the idea was captured in the mind of Allah, but he could change anything at his own whim. And this is not something that uh, would be philosophically inconsistent for for a Muslim, um, but rather a point of pride because it bespeaks the power of God. So the the heart of it is that there's nothing fundamentally but
1: particulars, right? There's nothing fundamentally but this thing and that
0: thing and the other thing over there. Yeah, you can call this and that a table. They're but, both tables, but but they're very much different essences and different identities. We just give them the name tables. But in
1: the, the world, in the Islamic
0: yeah. system that then carries over into the Christian systems of the
1: 14th century and right. beyond is that God, mm-hmm. extrinsically from without, mm-hmm. imposes order upon that world of particular things through law. Exactly. Extrinsic law. Exactly, yeah. And... Yeah. This can create the illusion of essences, right? Mm -hmm. Because things are being categorized, but in groups, sort of, according to the way the law behaves. Right, exactly. Because they behave, they respond to that extrinsic law in the same way, which makes them the same kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But not in their essence, but always externally, Mm -hmm. within the will of the
0: lawgiver. Exactly. Right. And, And that could change. You know, it, it, things are yeah. only what they are because he decrees it to be so. Exactly. Of course, this corresponds to something at, at a human level, too, where, where the human lawgiver could decree something to be what it is, and then the very next moment say, nah, I, don't, I think about it differently now. Well, this is explicitly what happens in the
1: formation of the, of the concept of sovereignty in European political thought. Right. In the late Middle Ages and moving into the early modern period, is this, the, the idea that the king is God— like quite directly, you know, like he sits on the throne of God. He is to uh, to the men of his kingdom. He is as God, right? And and which and,
0: is different than what when when Paul in Romans talks about uh, divine election of of kings. You well, mean, the, the, I mean, the huge distinction between what we were
1: talking about last time about the mediation of yep. God mm-hmm. through through a man, mm-hmm. men, mm-hmm. which is the kingship, priesthood, prophetic notions, classic notions in Christianity, to You're the source of order. The sovereign king is that absolutist God, the nominalist God on earth, basically, who provides order to his society through his will,
0: and his will is law. So we we read that, we read that, excuse me, in in Deuteronomy 17, when God said that you will ask for a man to rule you and I will give you one, Mm -hmm. but... Uh, at the end of this long dictum of, or of, of decrees that of things that the man won't do, the ruler won't do, he won't have taxes, he won't have a standing army, he won't take many wives. Right. But also it's most important that he he will read the law. Yeah, well, that's right. He's a he, minister of the law, he will not min- the creator of it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. because there's a God.
1: This is that open-endedness of Judaic and then Christian political theory. Mm-hmm. There is no sovereign among men. And that's why the kings are always capable of being judged right? They're capable of error. Mm-hmm. But that's precisely what goes away in modernity. The king is not capable of being judged any longer. He is the source of right and wrong. He is the source of morality. And, and, the, and the Christian thinkers who advance this theory, so it's absolutism, we might, we might think of it, mm-hmm. to, the, to the extent they're nominalist Christians, so they, they, they still believe that the king will be held to account, but he'll be to, held to account directly by God. Mm. And there's no one on earth and no one un- underneath his rule who's capable of judging him because there's no one capable of, of a standard by which to judge. He creates the standards, the king does, right? So the king becomes an absolute barrier between the divine and people. Even if you retain the idea of a god, the king, for all
0: intents and purposes, to the people— is God. So say that you're a you know very earnest Christian in this system. You have these uh, this understanding of reality of a mysterious sacramental liturgical order. Mm-hmm. But then you have something more particular that you have you have just these duties, these laws that you have to follow because the king just tells you to. Right. So maybe by um, mindset you could be a Christian, but by external action in your common day life you have to be a nominalist according to the sovereign's right. dictums yeah the the
1: world of action becomes the world as ordered by the sovereign like i need to i need to see in the world what the sovereign sees in order to move within it right right i can't suppose it to be something other than what the law is
0: decreeing it to be. In in your uh, article, the end of sovereignty, right? You have you give this example of when you had to take your kids on a on a, <laughs> a field trip or something like that. Even though you were driving in your car with, with your own kid, with your own children taking right. them to a, a, museum a museum or something, yeah. yeah. You had to sign a waiver that you as person A right. were responsible for children B, C, D, in car X.
1: Yeah, I had to give evidence of health insurance, evidence of, of car insurance, evidence, all this kind of stuff. Right? And you were just driving your kids. My own kids to the museum. I could have done it at any time. It's just because I happened to be doing it with, with a certain club. And, and they, of course, I mean, this gets into a whole other ball <laughs> of why opens a whole other can of worms here. But that, <laughs> that because they are a legal entity,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right, that, are, that is defined by the extrinsic law, yeah. Their relations have to be also governed in that way. So my relationship with the club has to be extrinsic, has to be defined legally, mm-hmm. right? And so our relationship, even though our actual relationship is a group of men who know each other by name, <laughs> right? In reality, the, the 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 fiction is that we are citizen A, citizen B, citizen D in a particular legally um, sanctioned
0: Relationships, yeah, right.
1: And, and so, even though you're so, there's this false reality yeah. or fictitious reality is sort of laid on top of reality. Reality
0: representation
1: replaces reality, right? And so, what ideologies do is is mistake or assert that that representation is is more real. This is um, just a jump way off, like George Orwell's sort of doublethink type situation, right? Mm. Like when you see the you see the world around you, and then you don't see it for what it is; you see it for its extrinsic registration within the legal system right
0: yeah yeah so in the 19th century even I mean I guess the century before certainly you have the developments of particular ideologies for the first time and just to go back and summarize because we already within these 18 minutes we've talked about a a lot of complicated things yeah the ancient world was a world more or less that saw reality as inherent to a particular order uh, but also a mysterious order, one that right. you could begin to articulate but never fully understand. You can't, never really, fully you can't master it. You, right. can't, you can't ever comprehend it. You can never perfectly articulate it, perfectly right. articulate it, and therefore you can't perfectly control it. As right. soon as you can articulate something, especially we see this in law, mm-hmm. as soon as you can articulate something in law, then you can control it. The right. same thing works... With some mental gymnastics, just in, in a person's mind, mm-hmm. oh, that happens. I know how they interpret it. You right, know, a happens. That's that's right. B or whatever. Right. What we find really in the Muslim world is championing this idea of nominalism. Is first, there's there's not these mysterious essences that reside in the physical world. No, the it's natural just a big pile world, of stuff. Right? It's a big pile of stuff that God Himself <laughs> created, <laughs> yeah. but also named and can yeah. change the identity of. Right. Um, at his whim. Um, And I'll I'll go off and toss this in too, that um, there were quite a number of of prominent Muslim thinkers whose works were translated from Arabic to Latin and were standard in the curricula of the universities of Oxford, Cambridge, and Paris through the Middle Ages. And you start to see some of uh, their thinking show up. Whether or not it's correlation, causation, doesn't really matter, but it's certainly true that uh, in the 14th century and going going forward this nominalist mindset yeah, where appears where the god is yeah. god is
1: not a loving father mm. sitting around the dinner, t- dinner table trying to move us into our perfection mm. but is
0: arbitrary tyrant.
1: arbitrary yeah. tyrant lawgiver who yeah. who your proper reaction to is is submission.
0: Yeah, and actually, that's not even a slight to say that for for a Muslim. No, because no right. I don't think. think. Who's like the the Augustine of the Muslim world, used that exact phrase in arbitrary. Yeah, tirade. I don't think we're slandering them by saying that. No, no, not at all. But what is important for us is that once this nominalist mindset came into the West, with a completely different theological understanding infusing it, mm-hmm. you have a, a rampant Individualism that that emerges, um, where, where the singular citizen can then look around at the world and decree it for what it is, or for what he thinks it is. Excuse yeah, me. Right. And this gets uh, this allows and his relationship with others mm-hmm.
1: is is always, is extrinsic because mm-hmm. the relationship of all things is extrinsic. Mm-hmm. It's decreed from without.
0: Yes. Right? right.
1: So it's not it's not that I'm born into a family. It's that. I'm born, I come into the world as an individual thing, just like everything else. Mm-hmm. And I am then situated within a family extrinsically, right? Like I become, I be, the, the roles that we all play are roles that are assigned to us by an external will.
0: Right. And you started to mention that with things that are not natural to the creative order. So like a table, for right. instance, something that man creates. Right. You you do have the power to define what a table is. Yeah, we made it. We made it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but there are things that... I mean, in so much as it is as a
1: table, we can't we can't exhaust what it's made out of. An un- sure. An yeah. understanding of that. Yep. Or, you know, it, it really is insofar as it is the thing that we create, mm-hmm. it is that thing, which means it's ours.
0: Yeah. We can right? control it. We name it. We have this identity. Yep. Whether it's a car, a couch, a table, it doesn't, doesn't matter. Right. But as soon as we try and have that same disposition towards the created order that, that God what God himself created right alone uh, then then everything begins this this change we come to this understanding that we're not trying to understand the mystery of God through his creation and participate in his created order mm-hmm. in order in order to have a more intimate relationship with him mm-hmm. but instead we begin to think that we can manipulate and right. masters so the, of, so the of world nature.
1: the world this is the if you're going to reduce if you're going to dare to sort of reduce the enlightenment to one idea <laughs> which is,
0: probably, is probably
1: a bad idea but let's just say <laughs> something like the world around us is is made up of nothing than, other than that which is below us in a sense right mm-hmm. in, a, in a sort of social hierarchy mm-hmm. and or the the celestial Sort of cosmic hierarchy, mm-hmm. right? So the world, uh, everything that's around us, everything that we encounter, is fully intelligible to us, mm-hmm. and 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 capable of being contained within our rationality, within within our own, with no appeal to anything higher. So this is the idea of like unaided reason, right? Like yeah. we can we can see the world for what it is, we can understand the way it works, and theoretically without remainder. Right. Like without without gaps. Right. Like, so gaps are a problem of we just haven't gotten there yet. We haven't exhausted our research yet. Right. We still have to we have to think things through. We have to learn more about the world. But we're just filling in the gaps until it's a complete picture. Right. And that's that's within our power to do theoretically that notion that enlightenment idea when when translated into politics and, and social thought becomes ideological ideology there's nothing we've got to come up with the rational system that makes sense of everything socially that 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 exhausts it that then allows us to manipulate it right because that's what we're doing with the material world that's what the scientific revolution is about right is is gaining is is learning about nature to the point that we can then manipulate it with our own structures socially then the idea is we're going to determine the laws of human society we're going to find what they are and this isn't learning the essences of things this is learning the 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 extrinsic laws like the laws of physics that that seem to govern it and then we're going to be able to use those laws to build a better machine there's
0: three ideologies that i'd love to talk about Uh liberalism socialism and nationalism
1: okay the, the motto or the slogan of the French Revolution is, is of course, liberty, equality, and fraternity. Mm-hmm. And that is the, the, the slogan in the revolution that sweeps away the remnants of the old regime that at this point is modern. It's not medieval or anything. I mean, that's a mistaken notion. But it still had a lot of the medieval forms and things like that. So sweeping it away... Um, and then what happens in the 19th century is that without, without Christianity holding those three things together, all three of which are Christian ideas. Sure. Right? right. Liberty, equality, fraternity. They break apart from each other. They can't hold together. And so the ideals that underwrite the revolution and all the revolutions that come from the French Revolution, liberty, I think, becomes turned into the ideo- ideology of liberalism. That, that sort of idea within the French Revolution, equality to socialism, ideologically to mm-hmm. socialism, and then fraternity to nationalism. Well, I mean, how do you hold liberty, equality, and fraternity together? We no, exactly. Right? Like really you had path, the you hold it together by, within Christianity because Christianity provides a context where which the paradoxes or the contradictions between those three mm-hmm. are resolved, right? And they actually find come into a harmony. So once you get rid of the that synthesizing a fact they they become contradictory mm. right liberty and fraternity like like f- individual freedom to do whatever you want and love of neighbor <laughs> right like love constricts you yeah right they don't hold together yeah right but let's start with liberalism because it's the easiest for us to understand and i think really it's the first it's it's sort of the the king of the ideologies within liberalism what is man is the question and, you know, we're going to be very simplistic here to make it simple. But basically the idea is men are individual actors, rational actors, mm-hmm. who are utility maximizing rational actors. So they, they, they are independent of each other intrinsically. They're just a mind and a, a person, right, who is attempting to maximize his own um, subjective utility. So whatever it, whatever it may be that he thinks is good for him to have. Whatever it is, so the, I mean, it'll develop into utilitarianism, the the idea of the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. Mm. But even that doesn't really tell us anything because pleasure is whatever happens to give any particular individual pleasure, right? Right, and that can vary from person to person.
0: A masochist could have a. There's no, and there's no standard to judge
1: between them, right? Because the, the, the fundamental anthropology is a is a subjective rational actor. Rational meaning, he pursues his ends of pleasure of utility. So usefulness, um, always by picking whatever course of action he judges to be best at doing it, best at fulfilling it. Mm. All right. So it's a tautology. It's a definition. Right. So once you've defined man as a as a utility maximizing rational actor, there's no example. There's no counterexample that can be given that can't be made to fit. Right? This is an axiom like geometry. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So it doesn't matter what you do. And people do this. It's like, sometimes you'll go, well, what about Mother Teresa? And their answer is, well, she thought that it was more in her interest to give her life over to caring for the poor than to not do it. And it's like, okay.
0: (laughs) Yeah, how many times have you heard that? I mean, it's just just tedious. More in her interest. Yeah, I mean,
1: it's... it's, um, it becomes. It's like yeah. All you're doing is is sticking to a definition.
0: So right? the, really, what you're, what they're able to do is put Mother Teresa, and the most flamboyant frat boy in the, into the same category as pleasure seekers. Right.
1: Yeah. Um, one just has a a more uh, maybe a more sophisticated form of pleasure, or maybe just. Um, but even that would be adding judgment to it. It's just different. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So society then doesn't really exist so what society is because because you can't describe it it's just individuals that you can it's just the summation of individuals who are who are utility maximizers mm-hmm. so they're interacting with each other trying to maximize their utility through their interactions making
0: deals basically but you don't have a total order moving as as a whole or or that can be described well as you a can't whole. so if you introduce some sort yeah.
1: of prior situation so if you introduce, say um that the world that the individual comes into is a social world sort of a socially constructed world to mm-hmm. a certain extent so his his choices are already constrained by society itself by by the by the the constitution of the social order that he comes into the, of the mores and culture that he comes into you've now introduced a variable that liberalism can't deal with because then you have to say well is that order good or is it bad? Is it providing him with good choices or bad choices? Is it but right? You you don't you don't want that. So so what, what... that is what we find in
0: our world. Well, it's what obviously are...
1: true, right? But yeah. what you need to have instead is is that society comes into being as a derivative thing that's dera- derivative from individual human interactions. So this is where you get all the kind of just sort of obviously silly um, creation myths that the liberals give us uh, about, like, the state of nature and then the social contract mm-hmm. and all of that,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? So how does it that society comes together? Well, in the beginning, it's a bunch of individuals, right? And yeah. these individuals are all living independent of each other. And they it, it doesn't matter, it, you know, they have variations on the theme, but the theme is that they're all trying to seek their self-interest, and that often leads them to violence because I want what you have, and if, I seek, if I'm pursuing my self-interest, that means I'll knock you on the head and take it. They realize that that's not a nice situation to be in. That doesn't maximize their self-interest. That's actually So what will maximize their self-interest is if they bound together and make certain rules for the game, certain rules of interaction. And they all kind of agree on these rules, and that's the, that's the birth of society. Right. So the right. birth of society is an extrinsic rule-based thing that governs individuals in their pursuit of individual pleasure.
0: That's
1: right. Great. That, distinct way of putting that's it. like, that's the way society is born. And that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if we're talking about Locke or Hobbes or whatever. I mean, that's basically, yep. basically what they're doing. And then all the way up to the moderns. I mean, the Austrian economists have the same creation
0: myth. Right. Yep. Okay. So
1: individuals then what liberalism would would advance is that is that okay? So that's the anthropology. That's our situation. So then, how do we how do we build the be- the best machine then based upon that? And the best machine is a, is a, a social machine would be on those laws is one in which human interaction is we, we try to reduce as much as possible the situations where two human beings might be tempted to hit each other on the head to take stuff. Right, right. Because they're just self-interested rational actors. So that means what we want to do is extend that extrinsic juridical organization to encompass more and more of human interaction. I mean, the consequence really is is to summarize it very simply is that we want all of human interaction to be contractual. Mm -hmm. So you and I are not fighting each other because we've made an agreement. I will give you something that I own that you value Mm -hmm. in exchange for something that you own that I that I value. And so the idea with liberalism is that this is a good, a very good thing, because and the the system, the logic here is very simple and very, and very compelling, right? So you give give the simple example of a commercial exchange. I have a dollar and you have a loaf of bread. I want the loaf of bread more than I want my dollar. You want the dollar more than you want your loaf of bread. So I give you the dollar, you give me the loaf of bread, we walk away, we're both richer, right? We both have something that we value more than what we had before. Right. Since wealth is nothing but subjective value, we're both richer, which means yep. society as a whole is richer. Yeah, net right? gain. There's a net gain for society as a whole. Everybody, society is wealthier because we made the trade. Yep. Now, you just absolutize that. So you, what you want to say is, therefore, if we can make every human interaction an in exchange, then every human interaction increases the net wealth of society. And this is what Ludwig von Mises and stuff are, are arguing. the the Austrian economists, Mm -hmm. that all human interaction is either war or exchange, right? Or deal-making. And he would go so far as to say all human action is deal-making. So like when I decide to walk out of this room, I'm exchanging one situation for what I perceive to be a better one, right? It's all, every human interaction is exchange of some sort. All right. So that's the basic, the basic conception of, of, of exchange, as being as being what you want to maximize the total utility of society as a whole so ma- as many contractual relationships as possible and the only choice is contractual or hegemonic right so you're mm. either in a contractual relationship or one is dominating the other right
0: they well, don't have they don't have
1: any they don't have any category for for something in between
0: or something in between, or even a completely different something way. Completely of, different. Uh, yeah. Right. So instead of contractual, I'll leave this room for a better state outside this room. Right. There's there's a duty compelling me that will magnify my soul outside this room. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. So so they know, would to they put would, it would, in a very grandiose way. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So they,
1: they because it's a tautology, they can mm-hmm. always account for those things. They just they're just adding layers to the to the
0: um, utility. Pursuit. Yeah, but there's a way of interpreting every single human interaction. Every
1: That's... single every human interaction can be fit within the system. And then the the question that then just has to be asked is what is our what are our goals here? And if mm-hmm. our goal is maximizing subjective utility realization, then the best way to do that is to totalize contractual relations.
0: Listening to the Catholic Social Difference. You can get our podcasts, our videos, and our print magazine for one annual membership cost, available on our website, postliberalthought.com. Many have made the argument that liberalism emerged from Protestantism. So God declares the sinner to be righteous. That's right. He doesn't lead him into righteousness. He doesn't slowly groom him into being a perfect image of God, of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. He rather just gives that sinner Jesus Christ's scorecard.
1: You know, you think about the pessimism of liberalism as far as human nature is concerned, Mm -hmm. right? That the assumption is that human beings are fundamentally selfish and nothing else. Mm -hmm. Altruism is a nonsense word. Mm -hmm. That seems to map pretty easily onto the the notion of total depravity.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And, And that what Christianity offers is not healing from that condition. It's actually, in spite of the persistence of that condition, salvation. Right. So salvation happens after this world, in spite of our incessant non non altering fallenness
0: right right so we see see that legal arrangement between man and god but that also corresponds to men man and man right so if you're going to love god and love neighbor it's going to be through two contracts right exactly um, <laughs> and you hope that it comes down to the to, to your heart is something genuine but it's, it's really not going to um and that's why you need you need contracts right um So within uh, this liberal paradigm, then you have these individual actors who are trying to work against the natural law really and truly because the natural law does not speak to individual human being on his own, maximizing his his gain or his pleasure, um, but rather living in this proper social order so that he might be able to adore God aright.
1: That's right. So the end of society is, is of course, like you said, the adoration of God or the movement of men into, into the, the vision, vision of God. Yeah. Um, but that, that, happens, that happens socially. When, when we talk about the common good of a family, it presupposes the family as, as the thing, mm-hmm. right? And the individuals within the family. right. Right as as members of the family, and there's a good there's goods that they pursue as a family. That doesn't you can't have that in liberalism.
0: Well, no, so it's so
1: kind what, of, it, what they what they end up with is just is just the accumulative good of society or the summation of good is becomes the common good.
0: Right. It is very strange when you read these the early liberals, even the, I mean now today, yeah. is that it is always an individual on his own in the forest where you begin or in the fields where, where you begin. It's like, where, where's his mom and his dad? Well, yeah, you liberalism is, is the ideology of, of uh, childless
1: men who have forgotten their own childhood, <laughs> right? <laughs> like there's no dependency, right? I actually, I was talking about this with my wife last night because we were, we were, we were talking about how, how in our society, our, our ideological vision, which is basically liberal, late liberal, and um, really, the world that we 've kind of attempted to build around it assumes no dependence, so mm. it, it assumes an individual actor who's capable who's basically caring only for himself and so and so children have no place, right children are always this weird anomaly which is which is the reason why liberalism is forced to 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 either create this this paradoxical realm of the private where things like family can function that for some bizarre reason don't obey the same laws right and they just it's just sort of like let's not delve too deeply into that let's just let there be this realm where apparently i can have domination over children or something you know you know which isn't a violation of their human rights or something right even though even though liberalism would would I mean liberalism doesn't have within itself doesn't have the the categories to deal with that. Right? So it's just either ignored or it's they the the, the, the the idea is to extend liberalism into the family and basically destroy the family. Right? To to, to destroy to, to make it a contractual arrangement. So which is, is why I mean at the most radical and... at the most radical you mm-hmm. get people like Murray Rothbard, these these libertarians mm. who who in order to make the system work have to say that children are owned, they're property, they're owned by their parents. Because how else do you account for the relationship, right? I mean, you have to say, well, they're not, they are, I mean, it's a totally totally logical and rational um, uh, solution to the problem of children. And so he would say that you can starve them to death or sell them or whatever, you own them. That's horrifying. But how else do you justify the parents' claim to them? right? Aren't they just rational decision makers on their own? And just the fact that they happen to be less developed, it's like, well, if we introduce that as a problem, it's like, well, there's a whole bunch of inequalities in society. Some people are smarter than others. Some people are stronger than others. Some people are, are, have, have different cultural benefits than others. It's like, isn't that just degrees on, isn't the, 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 the parent-child relationship just an out, sort of outlier of the same problem of inequality within society? And if we've introduced then, well, therefore, there's some sort of intrinsic relationship between those who have more power and those who are weaker, like a parent with their children. Well, then why wouldn't that be the case with someone who's smarter and someone who's less intelligent out in the world? And that then when you and I come to make a deal and I'm smarter than you, well, then it would be a violation of that of of some sort of pre liberal principle for me to take advantage of you. Right. But they can't you can't admit that you and i have to be equal out in the marketplace out
0: in the world we have to be the same peers right Now, a libertarian we've talked to you know, mentioned brought up uh, the austrians affair but to go you know as far deep as you can with within libertarianism right um which says i don't want to uh, have the state rule me or control me is i just give me give me the free market and that that will do its job um i think that that is still an a place that we haven't quite touched on. How would how would you understand libertarianism within the uh, within the the liberal social order when it pertains to politics?
1: Libertarians, I think the libertarians aren't actually advancing a political philosophy. It's it's merely a policy recommendation, right? So they also they they basically believe in an absolutist sovereignty. So they the, the, they view the world as um, a bunch of Uh, individual actors Mm -hmm. who are moving within a regime that accounts for everything as property and that everything has, is legally defined and has legally defined relationships with each other. Mm -hmm. And what they want is that universal power that, uh, that affords universal rights and property uh, regulation to adopt a particular policy, which is to allow the individuals who are moving within it to pursue certain types of activities and not others. Right, whereas other people view the same absolute absolute power, sovereign power, interacting with individuals, and think of different policies in order. But it's not a philosophical argument. You see, but it's it's they, they they agree on what's it what's happening when there are individual actors and there's the state. They just want to limit this state. They just say, well, what's what's the best relationship between those two things? And mm-hmm. the, but the state isn't the state isn't for them limited. The state is just as universal. The state is everywhere. If, if, our, if, if our relationship, if every human relationship is contractual, which is what libertarians would like, mm-hmm. right? That's mm-hmm. the way they envision it. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. What is a contract? It's a legal relationship. Right. And, the, and so the, there's three parties to every contract. There's you and me and there's the state. Like right. what makes it a contract is that the state enforces it. So, so the st- where every time we make a contract, we're bringing the state into our relationship. What's effectively happening is that our relationship is being legislated. So the reason why the state can then enforce the contract is that through the, the mechanism is that through our agreement, we've in a sense created a little law, right, that is now coercive, bearing the state's coercion. Right, right. So what we're, when you say all human interaction are, is, is contractual, what you are saying is that all human interaction
0: is political or if you take it to a real ex- libertarian extreme if you don't obey this contract that we've made then i have the right to punish you not even just a third party yeah but you have a right exactly i mean it's yeah. it's juridical it's still juridical
1: so you're you're you are mm-hmm. absolutizing the legal order i mean murray rothbard is absolutizing the legal order there is no exception to the political regime right. for him yep. when he talks about owning your children yeah So they're not, they're not about limiting the power of the state at all. They're about totalizing it. Yeah. Right. And they, they don't see that because they're so enthralled to the axioms of liberalism that they don't understand that that they're trapped within a system that is predicated upon the absolute power of the state. Like there's the, the, the axioms presuppose it. (laughs) So you don't, yeah, they, 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 they're arguing with, with other liberals about, about Policy,
0: not philosophy. And you can take advantage of, of others with, within this as long as they agree to the contracts. A major example of this is when we find that the subsistent farmers working within their their guilds and sharing with within their community have their land purchased by major capitalists right. and corporations so that they can no longer... Provide for themselves and they're forced out of their land and into the factories. Right. That's the industrial revolution. That's what happens,
1: yeah. Yeah. The liberal sort of story is that the industrial revolution, okay, so you, you, you presuppose these self interested and rational actors, and then you say, well, if, if, if the condition in the factories and the conditions in these new cities. Were, were so bad, why did everybody go there? It was all voluntary. people mm-hmm. traveled there people assumed they agreed to the salary they were getting paid mm-hmm. and so with our basic idea of exchange, that means they must have thought it was a better condition than what was what was preceding it. They were making rational decisions, so they must have been better off simple yeah the problem is is that is that it's not true so <laughs> so the problem is that is that the condition of the workers had already been um Conditioned by the rise of, of liberalism and, and capitalism, so what I mean is, is that those subsistence farmers, those peasants, basically who lived in um, customary ways of life, what what makes them eligible to move to the cities to become the proletariat is that that way of life is destroyed in the countryside, and the way it's destroyed is by the commercialization of agriculture, and, and so and so what you what you have then. So, you, if you look at things like um, uh, the enclosure movement in in the, starting in the in really in the seventeenth century and then accelerating, where these peasants are living in communities that have that are basically governed by customary farming practices, so that their relationship to the land is not one of uh, private property, but one of of shared use, basically hmm. according to sort of cu- customary regulations. Hmm. So the commons, all this right. land that they okay. share. So you might, the a, you might be a you might be a peasant who only who only sort of possesses a few acres for your own farming, but then you share in the use of thousands of acres, hundreds of acres, a forest, a stream, pasture land, right? The commons. And you and that's all regulated through through sort of customary use. So what it is is a is an economic system that doesn't doesn't suppose that all things are private property. There's this whole category of a private, private property in the sense of something that you own, that only you can use, and you can use in any, in any way you want, is, a, is in a pre-modern world a category that's very, very limited. Primarily limited to um, what they call mobile property, like stuff, like your shirt on your back, hmm. right? Hmm. So real property or real estate, land, is never that way almost never that way right it always has it always bears
0: with it social obligations and so that's quite interesting actually because that goes back to the beginning of our conversation when we're talking about nominalism and realism that that the things that are properly made by god Mm -hmm. the land not the table you know the the trees not the couch right these things have uh, a certain relationship or, or excuse me, that man has a certain relationship to these things that's different than the he things can't that he's pos- made.
1: He, I mean, in the I think in the classical sense, he can't properly possess
0: them. Right, they're not his.
1: They're not his. He, all, he can't even under he can't come to uh, to entirely understand them. All what he can do is is make use of them. This goes all the way back to Eden. I mean, come on, when we were talking about about having dominion and and subduing and and what that means is ordering the created world towards the worship of God, but not owning it. Mm -hmm. I mean, mean, I'm going to go on a John Locke rant here, but John Locke in his foolishness actually gives an account of the Garden of Eden where he interprets um, having, subduing, having dominion as, as working the land, working the the creation, created order so that you can come to own it and basically (laughs) build fences around it. Like he says, this enclosure is what Adam and Eve are doing. Oh my. Right. So, so they're, they're creating private property. That's, that's their... Oh my goodness, I just can't even believe you'd write that down. But he did. And that, the fact that people buy it is even crazier. <laughs> um, okay, so, yeah, so, so there's, there's a, this is, this is very confusing to modern liberals, right? Because, because, because modern liberals, the ac, part of the axioms of liberalism is that all things are property, private property. Mm-hmm. And if you stop for a moment to think about our own world, can you think of anything that's not a piece of property?
0: Anything? well yeah it's hard if working within that system like there's nothing this this jacket i, I mean own, as far as the state
1: is concerned yeah. as far as as far as the sort of legal order is concerned
0: everything is owned
1: everything yeah the leaf in your yard is yours well but i pay property taxes for it yeah I mean, <laughs> but you, you you know it's like it's like i guess the one thing i, I can come up with sometimes is the air no, that's true, but not not yet
0: in Ch- or in China. That's and that's different. what I'm saying is I yeah. think that's
1: probably mostly because no one has figured out a mechanism for
0: for owning it, yeah, for for containing it, yeah. Right. If you ruin the air, then you can start to buy good air and then distribute it. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. Yeah.
1: So it's but it but it but the air allows us to see what the meaning of a common good would be, like a common property, something mm-hmm. that's owned by everyone,
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: right? Um, not owned well, owned by everyone, really, not owned by anyone.
0: Right. Yeah. Be Used by everyone. It. Used yeah. by everyone, owned yeah. by no one. Yeah.
1: Um, and then you have to develop certain customary rules about how to use it. So we can all use the air. But if I pollute the air, if I pollute it too much, I mean, every time I exhale, in a sense, I pollute the air, but we have to allow that. But we can't, well, we don't want to allow, uh, you know, massive pollution of the air. So you, you, you start getting ways of regulating the common property that aren't about private property right? Okay, so you got to extend that in your imagination to include most of the material of the world, right? And that's the pre-modern, the pre-capitalist, the pre-liberal conception of stuff, mm-hmm. right? The, the stuff of the world is not owned by you or you, him or that, you know, whatever. It is used by all of us and used by all of us. And that doesn't mean it's unregulated. And it doesn't mean that, that there aren't people with particular responsibility for it. Right. So like the word that's most most often used or most often translated as property when we're talking about the Middle Ages is 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 dominion
0: to have Mm. dominion
1: over something. Um, And that's just not to own it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that that's that's that goes back to Adam. Right. Um, To have dominion is, is to rule it in a sense. But for its ends and for the common good, for the ends of the other people who are dependent upon it. So the lord of of an estate doesn't own the estate. Right. He manages it. He manages it. Absolutely. And he manages it for the peasants who live on it. Right? Like he can't kick them off. They have rights. They have customary, they have, you know, they can use the forest for their firewood and he can't just decide they can't. Yeah. They can fish in the stream and he can't, he doesn't own it. Right even though it's his estate. Right. That's not what it means for it to be his estate. So then what would That's we... exactly what changes. Okay, that's... So, okay, so in the, as we move into the water, modern world, the whole idea of enclosure was the... No, in fact, he does own it. You know, so we've invented this idea of We've extended the notion of private property from the shoes on your feet to everything, theoretically. And now we're going to make that happen legally. So the way we do it is it was, we go, well, look at this common land here, the commons. Who owns it? That doesn't make any sense. No one owns it. It's like someone has to own it. The theory won't allow for no one to own it, right? Right. So who owns it? The Lord owns it. So let's enclose it and make it more efficient, right? So now that peasant who only owed, owned or possessed two acres of land, but had hundreds of acres at his disposal, now only has the two acres,
0: right? No, you mentioned efficiency, and this is a really important part for, the, for our conversation. But where does that value the value of efficiency fit into the rest of the liberal framework
1: well it's actually this is this is where the the liberal system is it's most brilliant is that um if you can absolutely if you can totalize self-interested and rational behavior this is sort of adam smith's insight Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so every every encounter is like you and i with the loaf of bread and the dollar yeah right what you're doing is making it so that everybody is attempting to maximize their gain so the the net the the outcome of that is is a highly efficient allocation of resources, right? So if I have a dollar, I have a dollar. It's a limited resource. It's a it's a scarce resource. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole series of things that I can buy with that dollar. I'm going to pick the one that maximizes my gain, right? That I value more than the dollar. The most. That's the right. best deal for me. Right. Right. And everybody's doing that.
0: Well, that's exactly what I do when I walk into a coffee shop and I say which pastry I want or which coffee yeah. I want. I was like, which one is going to make me happiest? Yeah. yeah,
1: so what I'm doing though, what what because everybody's doing that, it becomes um, the resources. So, so what sells the best becomes the best thing to have mm-hmm. and to produce so that you can sell it. So what people want the most right. is going to, if you have the thing that people want the most, that's going to maximize your profit in the exchanges. You're going to be able to demand the most for it. Mm-hmm. So everybody's thinking that way. Everybody's basically engaged in the production of some goods and the trading of those goods. So if everybody does that, the effect is the the um, most efficient allocation of resources and most efficient production of, of goods. Right? So there's no denying the truth. Any opposition to liberalism can't be predicated on <clears throat> denying the truth of that. <laughs> I mean, that's so... It, this is the problem that lots of socialists make is that, is that they 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 want to argue that socialism will actually be more productive and produce more wealth than, than liberalism which is an absurdity yeah right so it, it's obviously the case that this is, it produces um it really does produce sort of maximal uh efficient allocation of resources when it comes to agriculture this is this is really important because Agriculture is based on land and weather, basically, right? And so the comparative advantage or what's the most efficient crop for me to grow in one chunk of land is different than a different chunk of land, right? It might be someplace where wheat is what's... what This land is the very best at growing wheat. And so I should grow wheat, nothing else, because I can trade for the barley, right? right? I can I can grow more wheat here than anything else, which means I can trade for the beef. where And some guy somewhere else where beef is the his land and his weather conditions or whatever is most efficient for beef production yep we'll do that and we'll trade and everyone will be richer
0: so division of labor the division of labor
1: obviously right yes, and that happens in agriculture mm-hmm. um, and so the the, the 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 movement of enclosure of the Commons is directly connected to that movement the the, the efficient allocation of,
0: of agricultural resources. So when this supply and demand is, is perfectly met within the division of labor, when, when I have the beef that you want, you have the wheat that, that I want, then then everything goes well. Um, but who actually ends up consuming the beef and who ends up consuming well, the The people. Wheat? Just the people. Dude. Yeah, ultimately, right? I guess that's... Uh, does, does division of labor... Necessarily correspond with uh, the proper or the not the proper, but just a just distribution. Well, no, absolutely not. So, so, yeah. so.
1: I mean, I guess the way I would want to go about this is that is that this what we're talking about in agriculture is the commercialization of agriculture, right? Because those exchanges, what you're doing is turning agriculture into commodities, right? Right. So yeah. you're turning the production of agriculture, the product produce of agriculture into commodities that can then be traded
0: monetarily but, but yeah but that's the thing it's, it's for the best price right. right right okay so what but it's not like i'm bartering this for for you know my my beef for your wheat before I, I i there's a place i want to go with that but first okay. what i want yeah. to do is we'll
1: say what happens to the peasants when the agriculture is commercialized okay yeah right yeah. because when it's commercialized and when the land becomes no longer commons but becomes private property mm-hmm. that means the peasants become no longer um no longer customarily related to the land, but become basically um, employees, mm, right? They, mm-hmm. become, they become wage earners. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And as you, as you become more efficient, uh, you need less of those people, right? Yeah, so yeah, so right. It, it, think about how different this is. You're not, in the, in the pre-modern world, you are born into a village and there's a people who lives in this estate and they have, they live on the estate. And the resources of the estate are what support them, right? And they have the fishing rights and the wood rights and whatever and all this kind of stuff. The, 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 the elimination of that so that it's all the, the, all the resources are now property that are being allocated efficiently for production, which means the people now, what, are they, what do they have to sell? It's just their labor, right? So they're selling their labor as farmers to, within the system to their, the, the now owners of the property. And they become just another commodity. Their labor becomes another commodity, just like the way the wheat is a commodity or the beef is a commodity or whatever. And they have no claim to the produce of this, right? They're just
0: selling their labor. So you can literally sell time.
1: Yeah, yeah. but I mean, this this has... This is very productive. So a lot of the pro-liberals will go, oh, yeah, don't you understand the massive production of food that occurred because of this, hmm. right? And it's like, yeah, that's absolutely right. The, there's a massive increase in the production of food, agricultural products, which fed the cities. Because what do all these peasants do now, right? They're, they're ha- we, we get the emergence of this whole new class, which is the rural poor, which doesn't exist before in a sense. Yeah. yeah. In a sense, sort of everybody's poor, kind of, in a subsistence environment, but they're all they're all cared for yeah yeah yeah. and so now we get the the emergence of a rural poor which are trying to make ends meet through wage labor uh in the in the in agriculture commercialized Mm. agriculture um just massive poor roles Uh, like the british government develops a whole system of parish relief to try to deal with all these poor people right who are now can't find work um and they uh, this is where we get the populations for the for urbanization for the for the creation of industrialization in the cities and the food the increased food production is what then feeds the cities wow that is a vicious circle there so but the point is is that that guy who goes to the city to 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 get a factory job it's like yeah it's better than starving in the countryside my goodness yeah but it's not it's not that's that's it's not necessarily better than the, the the customary peasant
0: life that they had a hundred years ago. Right, they're probably eating just as well, if not. worse. Oh, they were eating better as peasants. Yeah, there is. You know, uh, there, was, there I was reading some old documents, and people were mentioning that during the the, the reign of subsistence uh, farming, when which they still had in in memory, mm-hmm. there, the line was everyone ate meat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Everyone yeah. ate meat. Yeah.
1: <laughs> no, I mean. Okay, but but you asked about you asked about the justice of the allocation of the resources. I mean, I think the classic example is um, is the is Irish the Irish potato famine, where so,
0: so usually the w- way that I hear the this story or like it was taught it growing up was that the subsistence farmers faced yet another famine, except this time they had a way out, going to America, right? And so yeah. it was it was. So do you know that? maybe it's less often told, but
1: you have this famine going on. uh, Millions are dying, ultimately. Ireland was still exporting agricultural products to England to sell as the peasants were starving to death, right? The peasants couldn't pay as much as the markets in London could pay for the products. So the, the, the efficient allocation, the profit maximizing allocation is to sell
0: that product to England. Okay, so let me just share with <laughs> like, this. Like so the so the so the the people who used to work on the farms or work work the land, make their potatoes as well as herd their cattle mm-hmm. and eat their livestock right. no longer owned any of this. The people that did right. took the labor of those same people mm-hmm. and the things that they were producing the crops that they were producing and the livestock that they were caring for. And instead of feeding them who, who actually worked, worked the around, they sold it. They sold it. When right. all of these people were dying, because the only thing they could afford was potatoes. Yeah. Because they had nothing to gain. They had nothing
1: to sell, but their labor and their labor wasn't worth very much. That's diabolical. It is diabolical. Herbert Spencer. Yeah. Uh, famous liberal theorist mm-hmm. often championed by libertarians and stuff in his theory he 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 would talk about letting the orphan die in the gutter as being an act of uh, the, the the sort of the sort of toughness that allows that is for humanity's best interest <laughs> that it's a sort of hygiene of, of humanity because the weak have nothing to sell they're not int- contributing to the efficiency and the best thing i mean like so we, it's just it's darwinian it becomes darwinian yeah, yeah. of course it becomes mm-hmm. darwinian
0: mm-hmm. yeah no wonder he arises at this time yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah, all yeah. these are all mm-hmm. interrelated movements yeah yeah
1: but that but that but the see, you see private it, the extension of a certain notion of private property socially is is the is
0: a sort of key idea hmm right So if you have your private property, and you're raising whatever you can on it, you want to sell it for whatever you can get most for it. Yeah. Which is a complete inversion of not only what Christ's commendation is in the Gospels, of caring for your neighbor. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not only a complete inversion of the spiritual genius of the church, which commends the poor um well this is kind of an active fight it fighting against it for yourself and in the process you make your neighbors even poorer yeah and it's um
1: it it destroys the very notion of justice right so the very the very notion of justice the liberals because of the absolutizing of property and individual rights, um, eliminate the concept of justice. So for them, justice merely means not committing fraud.
0: Because that's the one thing that, the one principle that they uphold is is law and contracts. So if you, if you. So if you break that contract. If you break
1: your contract, that's unjust. It's just evacuating all meaning from the word justice. They
0: no longer have a concept of justice. Wow. So this is what socialism is reacting against. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know?
1: So we're... Well, I mean, with the react- I mean, we haven't even talked about the urbanization, like what actually is happening in the factories. These workers are coming from the countryside into the cities to produce, uh, to turn the raw materials of the world that are produced by now commercialized agriculture mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. mining mm-hmm. into into products that are then being sold again on the marketplace right so the human labor is just one input in the factory among among all the other in fact the factory the very logic of the factory is that it's a perfectly efficient machine right that's the that's the idea and so human beings are just a literally i mean literally a, a component of the factory machine right and they talk about them that way the theorists of the factory talk about the people that way wow one of the objectives for the efficiency of a factory is reducing the human aspect of the human workers, basically. <laughs> so you you want to reduce any realm for creativity or skill. Oh my. Gosh. And one of the reasons is because creative and skill for people become willful because they, they, they think of they have dignity in their work and they perceive themselves as having some stake in it. And so you want to reduce that as much as possible. And he, and so that they're merely technicians of the machines. Oh my right. Gosh. Um, which is obviously the most efficient. He's obviously right. Yeah, of course it is. And, yeah. and he says... And this he, is the assembly line. This, yeah, and, and, and yeah. then they go so far as to say this is particularly, it's particularly useful to have women and children because they lack the kind of uh, willful um, assertion that the men have. Right? So get those kids out there because they'll mm-hmm. just do what you say for nothing. It actually makes me very emotional when I think about this because I've read a lot of these accounts and, you know, I have little children. Mm. And... What they did to these kids, you know, I mean, sending seven-year-olds into the mines where they, there's these accounts where they never see daylight because they work six days a week from before the sun comes up to after the sun goes down in underground. And then they have Sunday off and they're so exhausted, their poor little seven-year-old selves that they just sleep all day and then off to the mines Monday morning. It's horrendous. But hey, it was the efficient allocation of resources, right? We're producing a lot. They'll work for it. They must need it. I mean, can you imagine that? That actually, I can't imagine. Oh, whatever. I mean, imagining that 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 works for you is, is, is that justification is psychotic. But they they actively argued that. Like the people who are arguing against child labor laws, there are people arguing against them in public, saying are making the arguments for the efficient efficient system of wealth production.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so there's no no wonder that communism socialism rose up. Against Absolutely this. no wonder.
1: In fact, the popes totally acknowledge this. Like they say, the reason why socialism is happening is because of the gross injustices of
0: the right and rare. Right. No, yeah. if. We'll get into socialism in the next podcast okay. and in the third ideology, nationalism and the one following. Right. But just kinda of quickly, there's you know, Austrian economics has made a rise in, in the last uh, few decades. And and certainly libertarianism is is going strong. Right. Isn't what they want just a return to this, this old system without such great state interference? Or, or I shouldn't put it like that government and interference in government programs having the the free market and individual actors rather than the bureaucracy itself yeah uh, I mean stepping I, in
1: there's serious theoretical problems so yeah. so for example, if everybody is self-interested in rational actors trying to maximize their utility and mm-hmm. why in the world wouldn't they use the government against each other mm-hmm that's what they like. Doing, yeah. Like on what grounds would they not attempt to deploy the state against each other, or attempt to use the state for their own benefit? Like I want healthcare, I want more money. I can the best, the most efficient way for me to use my resources is to get a politician to use the power of the state to
0: give me healthcare. How is that not libertarian? Right. Well, that makes sense. Why guy like Peter Thiel. No, I mean, it's instance, like, like a
1: rest. In order, you have, to, you have to argue. So this is, this is the problem with Ludwig von Mises. is one of the problems with this whole theory of human action. Because it's like, if you're actually expounding a theory of human action, what you have to be doing is describing the world in which we actually live. Mm. Right? Because this is the product of human action. What I would argue is that the libertarian fantasy world is actually the closest we ever get to achieving that is late 19th century England, which I think they actually acknowledge. It's Mm -hmm. like the the period of classical liberalism, right? Hmm. Hmm. Which is exactly the time when you have a ideological liberalism who's ruling, and they're ruling over a population of workers who are not really liberal, who are basically still peasants in their mindsets. It's exactly the democratization of liberalism that gets us the welfare state. And what we have, everybody's after their own gain. What, why? Well, you'd have, to, you'd have to assume that people have some sort of a ideological belief in the sanctity of someone else's property. Yeah. But, that, but the whole origin story tells us that's not the case. The whole creation story, they have to say something like, it's wrong for me to vote the state to take someone else's property because that's their private property and private property is sacred. Okay. But why would you believe that? Where does that come from? That's a dogma, right? That and then the very the very origin stories of liberalism say that that's not the case, right? That we start out at war with each other, taking each other's property at will, and that we create the state because we think it's in our best interest to do that. Well, I think it's in my best interest for the state to take your property and give it to me. Why wouldn't I do that? Like they have to they have to introduce they have to introduce an external ideological principle. In order to maintain their fantasy right what they really need is a is an ideologically pure party to rule right that 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 rules and creates this environment and manages this is the laissez-faire is planned idea right plans laissez-faire economics and maintains it and doesn't allow people to deviate it forces them to work within a particular um, policy arrangement i guess they could why not try to do that? I guess, right? If <laughs> they think that's what what ought to happen. Yeah, but you see how they're imposing a value system. Yeah, they're, absolutely. And the president finally
0: rise rise up against it. Yeah. and and that's what uh, much of the chaos of the last century, you know, witnessed it was was right. Was, and that's that's what the papacy acknowledges. And that's what the papacy acknowledges. I mean, especially when we
1: get into the twentieth century about what's going on with communism and socialism.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's yeah. what we'll, we'll pick up uh, next time with ideology number two, the reaction against all of this. Right. And uh, and then uh, see uh, its problems as well. Yeah. Thanks. This has been the Catholic Social Difference with Andrew Willard-Jones. To join in, write us a letter on our website or talk with us on Twitter. But most importantly, do pray for the conversion of your community to the truth of Catholic social doctrine. It's all my life